Well, a reminder that uh, Camp in the City is coming June 15th through 19th, just a little bit more than a month away. We're excited to have Pine Cove Christian Camps from Texas come here right on our site to host a camp. This is an unbelievable experience for your kids. I can say that personally. Uh, My daughters have been through this very camp. The church where I was serving at the last two years uh, came to our church, or the, the, the camp came to that church. And uh, we had that opportunity for our kids, and they loved it. So if you haven't signed your kids up, I think we have about 70 or a little more than 70 kids from this body already signed up, so that's fantastic. I have two volunteer requests for some of you in this room. One or more of these things may grab your attention. The first is we need a few more host families. I believe we need a total of 10. I think we've got six or seven already, so three or four more. Your opportunity is to host several of the college-age counselors that will be here. These are some of the best uh, college kids that you've ever met, you've ever had a chance to encounter, and it's a blessing for you. It will be a blessing for you if you're able to open up your home. Again, the dates are June 15th through 19th, and you can get more details out at the, uh, the check-in desk, the Children's Ministry check-in desk, and leave your contact information if that's something that interests you, and Connie Dunlop will follow up with you sometime this week. The other need that we have is for a nurse or a doctor who's willing to be here for a couple of the days of camp. Um, it's five days total. I think we have someone already for two of those days. So we need one or more volunteers to serve for the other three days. If that's something that you'd be able to serve, even for a day, we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd be glad to help scholarship uh, a kid uh, that may be close to you, a son or a daughter or a grand son or granddaughter or just someone else uh, as a way to say thank you for that volunteering. But we would love to talk to you about that as well. Check in with the children's ministry desk if that's something you could help us with. Well, we are in week four already of this series on the life of Abraham. I think it's going to be 27 weeks total. It'll take us through the summer and into the fall. We'll probably wrap it up sometime in October. And if you know anything about the life of Abraham, which I know you all do, the first word that comes to your mind is faith. And so, of course, we've been talking about faith, and specifically we've been talking about what does the Bible say about faith, how does it define faith, and how do we see that illustrated through the life of this man of faith, Abram, as he will later be called Abraham. And I hope that you've seen, in fact, I know already, if you were here last week for Michael's sermon, you saw that his was not a perfect life of faith. He he had some victories, he had some failures, and last week we watched him stumble through, and we'll recap that in just a minute, but the key theme of Abraham's life is essentially what does it mean to live faithfully when you've been promised something, but the promise hasn't shown up yet. So I want to use an illustration, this comes from Lloyd, uh, he used this at Brentwood last week, and uh, I spoke to him about it, and I asked for permission to use it. And I modified it because I thought it was so helpful, but I thought, you know, I think that this illustration can sort of cover the whole series if you think about it. So Lloyd had this letter P that he demonstrated stands for the promise. And all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who put our faith in Jesus Christ, there are a lot of promises that we can rightfully claim. Uh, Certainly the promise that we're going to be with God forever Uh, after we die or after Jesus returns, whichever comes first. And certainly the promise that we've been given life through Jesus Christ and life that will last for eternity but even begins now in part, this fullness of life, this eternal kind of life that Jesus has given us. But we also have to admit, all of us that are living in this fallen planet, 
that there are some realities about this world where the promise and the reality sometimes feel like two different things, don't they? It feels almost as if all the promises that we've been given are only here in part. And I would say that that's true, that we're still living in a broken, fallen creation. We're still living in an earth that groans. And if we're honest, when we look in the depths of our own heart and our own mind, we see brokenness, we see depravity, we see sinfulness, we see areas where there's a gap between what God has promised to us and what we're actually experiencing. So you might say to live a life of faith is to sort of live in the gap between the promise and the reality. And so if you think about Abram's life so far, his life is a story of him struggling in the gap, him struggling in this tension. So we learned the first week about Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, God made him a promise. It was a huge, massive promise. God would bless him. God would make him a great nation. He would bless his name. All those who blessed Abraham would be cursed. All those who cursed Abram would be cursed. He would have many descendants. The promises go on and on in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And then we looked at verses 1 through 9 of how that promise began to work its way out. And then the reality didn't take long to hit. So the promise goes through verse 9 of chapter 12. The reality hit in verse 10. The first words of verse 10 read, there was a severe famine in the land. Now, how's this going to work? This, this land, this promised land that God's promised to Abram, there's a famine. There's not enough food. And so Abram literally has a decision to make this early in the narrative. What am I going to do in the tension? This promise God's made to me, and yet there's no food. What do I do? So Abram goes to Egypt. And the text doesn't say that was a sinful decision, but I think we can sort of read between the lines because of what follows in his sojourn in Egypt that Abram was more caught up in the reality at that moment than he was in the promise, if you think about it that way. So part of Abram's reality was he knew he was going to a land with a powerful dictator in Pharaoh, a man who would take anything that looked good to him. And Abram knew that he had a beautiful wife. And he was back in this tension. God's promised me descendants, but what if Pharaoh desires my wife so much that he kills me in order to get her? So Abram decides to dip into his own resources, his own scheming, and he comes up with this scheme that Michael uh, taught on last week, that I will have my wife lie that she is my sister. Now, in this moment, what Abram was doing, essentially, was he was taking a step back away from the promise through his own deception, and he was consumed, obsessed with just these circumstances. He was unable to trust God that God had a plan. And literally, God had to intervene. It was God that supernaturally communicated to Pharaoh this woman is not a sister of Abram. This woman is Abram's wife. And so Pharaoh comes to Abram. I, I'm, I have to imagine there was a lot of shame in this conversation for Abram. And Pharaoh says, why have you done this? Why have you deceived me? And he sends Abram on the way. And where our text picks up this morning is this journey back to the promised land that God initiated. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 13. I want to begin our journey through this chapter. We'll read the whole chapter this morning. We'll break it up into sections. To begin with, I want us to just read one through two. And as I read, I want you to imagine this, this journey back into the tension between the reality and the promise. 
Genesis 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and gold. Now the Negev is this desert area, South Canaan, so it's in the southern part of the Promised Land. It's the first area of Canaan you come to if you're coming up from the south, which is where Egypt is. And Abram is making this transition from the lush Nile River region where he had become very wealthy back into this promised land that at least at this part of the geography is still fairly barren. Now I want you to imagine what this journey might have been like personally for Abram. Uh, He came out with a lot of wealth, but I have to imagine he came out with some other things too. Maybe some shame, maybe some guilt, maybe some embarrassment. I wonder what his relationship was like at this moment with his wife, Sarai. I kind of had this image in my head this week as I was thinking about this of of kind of Abram, you know, riding up on the the, the camel or whatever it was next to Sarai and kind of maybe bringing her some of the gold that he'd gotten from Egypt as a peace offering. And he's just sort of initiating conversations. So how was your time in Egypt? And Sarai's like, talk to the hand. You, you, you gave me up to that man. How could you do that? You involved me in your scheme, Abram. How could you do that? So Abram is making this journey. Must have been a hard, difficult, guilt-ridden, shameful journey back into the promised land. And I want to keep reading because something wonderful happens in verses 3 and 4. He went on his journeys from the Negev, so from the desert, as far as Bethel. This would have been more up north into the more fertile area of the promised land to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. To the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now, do you see the significance of this journey? He's moving from his stark reality that had consumed him and actually caused him in his own head to feel like he had to lie and scheme back to the promise. He goes to the very place where he built the altar in Genesis 12. And I imagine in my mind's eye, when he's approaching that site, when he's approaching that place, I imagine Abram straining his eyes to see if the altar is still there. I imagine maybe a, a tearful reunion with this spot that God had literally spoken to him, that God had showed up in his life. And I imagine that for Abram, that altar still staying, still remaining after those months or years of his sojourn in Egypt would have been a tangible reminder that the promise still remains. The promise still stands. And Abram, back at this place, back at the promise, does business with God. He called upon the name of the Lord. Remember, that's a euphemism for he worshiped. He likely sacrificed. He no doubt prayed. He probably lift up his eyes, lift up his voice. He called upon the name of the Lord. He got back into right relationship with God. Our text goes on from there because Again, it doesn't take long for reality to hit once again. Verse 5, now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. 
And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling there in the land. So reality hits for Abram, and his reality this time is the resources are not enough to sustain all the people that were now a part of this community. Uh, week one, we talked about the concept in Hebrew of the father's house, the Beit Av, and this idea that it was now Abram's responsibility to provide for this large clan, and the clan included now Lot, who was an adult. He had family of his own. He had servants of his own. He had herds of his own, even tents of his own, the text tells us. And they hit an impasse. The text also goes out of its way to mention that there were other people in the land. This land was already being dwelt in by these other people groups. So what Abram and Lot would have been sharing together were essentially the leftovers of the land. And as you can imagine, massive herds of livestock and all these people needed many resources. And the father's house, the Beit Av of this clan, had now become too numerous, too big to sustain them. This is the problem. And I want you to realize Abram's back in the middle of this tension. He's done business with God. He's reclaimed that promise. And yet reality is still stark. There still are not enough resources. And much worse, there's now strife in his own family. There's even a fear that there may be violence between these two groups. What is Abram going to do? Let's continue in the text. We'll pick it up in verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan that it was well-watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus, they separated from each other. In these several verses we just read, the key word is separate. It appears at the beginning, near the beginning, and it appears at the end. Abram says, separate from me. This family unit has become too big. It's necessary for us to separate so we can thrive. It's necessary for us to divide. And he was essentially telling Lot, begin your own family unit. Begin your own bait of your father's house, and I will let you choose whatever land you want. Now, This would have been a shock to Lot. This would have been a shock to the readers of this text. And in the oral tradition, this story would have been passed along, I imagine, gasps as this part of the story was told around the campfire because in that culture, it was the elder, it was the patriarch that got to choose. And so what would have been expected of Abram in this culture would essentially have been, hey, my reality is, Lot, you're getting in my way, and I love you, but I can't have you here anymore, so so go, just leave, and I'm going to take the best part because I have a responsibility for my family, and you go. 
You go find whatever you can find, but I get the best. That would have been what was expected. Abram took a completely different course. You see, Abram got back in the center between the promise and the reality. And he must have imagined, hey, the God that just renewed his promise with me at that altar is going to provide for me. I can be generous. I can have open hands with my nephew, Lot. So Abram does just that. He might as well have said to his nephew, hey, you know, here are my bank account numbers. You look at everything in there. You decide what's most attractive to you. You decide what, where the numbers are richest, where the numbers are strongest. And you take that and I'll take whatever is left over. Land was everything to these men. I remember when I was growing up, my younger brother, two years younger than me, Brian, uh, we, we used to argue over who would get the biggest slice of pizza or the, the last French fry, you know, when we're eating the French fries. And so we developed this idea and we called it, you split, I pick. And the idea is, whichever one would split, if they were not the ones that were picking, they, I mean, they would be as precise as possible. And I, I have a memory of literally like the last French fry at McDonald's, you know, like measuring it out. Because <laughs> heaven forbid your little brother would get a millimeter more of French fry than you would. And I was reminiscing about this with, with my mom this week. I told her I was going to use this illustration. And she said, so, so which one did you want? Did you want to be the one that split or did you want to be the one that picked? And I said, oh, you want to pick. You know, because if you split, the best case scenario is you get exactly 50%. But if you get to pick, you know, 50% is the worst case scenario, right? You split, I pick, right? So, so this is what... Abram was doing the opposite of that. He was saying, take whatever you want, and it doesn't even have to be equal. You get your first choice. Abram acts in faith. He doesn't use his resources to solve the problem this time. Right? His own power that he could have leveraged to take what he felt like he wanted, that's what he did in Egypt, right? He uses his own resources. This time he goes in a different direction. Uh, and, and don't undermine the difficulty of this decision. I think this must have been a difficult decision. I imagine there was some wrestling with Abram before God. He must have asked, what if Lot chooses the best part of the land? How will you work, God? It reminds me of a question he asked earlier. What if Pharaoh takes my wife? How will you fix that, God? Abram has learned a lesson. This time, he chooses faith. He chooses trust. He is trusting God, you might say, even when it doesn't make sense. Let's see what happens. Let's see how God responds in verses 12 through 18. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent 
and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. The results are in two things we discern from the text. Number one, Lot's going to be in a lot of trouble. Back in verse 11, it indicates that Lot journeyed eastward. And if you have been tracking through Genesis, you know that the concept of moving eastward is not a good thing in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden to the east. Cain after he killed his brother, was cast out to the east. The men and women who constructed and schemed to plan the Tower of Babel, they were gathering and walking in the east. There's a deliberate indication. There's a foreshadowing. And you just want to scream out as a reader, Lot, don't go east! And then the narrator, Moses, goes even one step forward to tell us the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. This is not the kind of company that Lot needs to be keeping. So Lot will be in trouble, and we'll see that unplay over the next several chapters, over the next several weeks of the series. But Abram, well, God reestablishes that promise. In fact, he goes even more specific more concrete in his words to Abram, even than he did back in chapter 12. There's two key aspects of the promise that God reiterates to Abram, the land and the descendants. And I want you to note the enormous magnitude that God reinforces this promise in. He says, all the land which you can see. So imagine God leading Abram to this high point, this high place in this area, and he looks around 360 degrees, all the land that you can see. And then when talking about his descendants, he uses this incredible analogy, I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth. And I picture Abram in this desert region, maybe reaching down and grabbing a handful of dust, and in that dust, in that sand, or more grains of sand than Abram could possibly count. And then he just sort of lets that slip through his fingers and his eyes gaze all around him with millions and even billions of grains of sand or grains of dust. Now, Abram could only imagine how that would play out. We can look back and begin to see what God is doing and how he is at work and how he would be at work over the next 4,000 years, even up to this moment in our day. So God reestablishes this promise to Abram in a substantial, big way. But note the future tense in the promise. I will give you this land. I will give you descendants. You see, Abram is still living in the tension He's still living in between the promise and the reality. He'll live his whole life in this place. God doesn't say, I'm now giving you the land present tense. I'm now giving you the descendants. He says, I will. Abram's still back in the tension, but he's learning, right? He's learning how to live here faithfully. And this is what this journey is ultimately about for us as well. Well, there's so much we can learn by comparing the faith of Abram and the faith of Lot. So I want to just pull out several of these things. We have a chart that we'll put on the screen to sort of help you sort of imagine. If you can kind of go back and forth, we'll spend quite a bit of time on this. I want to unpack several of these things. The first contrast between Lot and Abram, Lot lifted his eyes 
Abram was told by God or commanded by God, lift up your eyes. You, you see, a different person was initiating the action between the two. Lot saw the valley of the Jordan. God showed Abram the whole land. Lot chose for himself. Abram received from God. By the way, my experience, and I'm sure yours matches this, is there's a sense that it's more difficult to receive something than it is to take it. And what I mean by that is to receive something means you're not in control, right? You receive something, it may be good, it may be bad, it may be a gift, it may be a curse, it may look good, but you may come to find out it's not good. You don't exactly know what you're getting, you just receive it. When you take something, you're firmly in control. Lot decided he was in control. Abram decided God was in control. Lot followed his desires. Abram followed God's direction. Lot settled in the cities of the valley. Abram settled in the land of Canaan. Now, I want to bring out this cultural difference between city living and rural living. Back in that day, most people still lived on the land. Most people were still rural dwellers, but cities had started to emerge, and where the real wealth was, oftentimes was in the city, and Lot began to move closer and closer to these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The problem is cities are filled with people, and these people that were in these cities were not the people of God. So do you remember, way back to the beginning of the series, we talked about God's big picture plan in Scripture, is that the people of God would dwell in the place of God with access to the presence of God. Lot chooses to dwell with people that are not the people of God, and we'll see as the story plays out that that will cause him much grief. Lot dwelt near Sodom. Abram dwelt near an altar. And finally, the place that Lot chose would be destroyed. The place that Abram was given would be his forever. Uh, as you just reflect on that list, you can learn so much about the life of faith. I want to pull out three applications or three lessons that we can dig into from this particular part of the story of Abram. And Lot is such a good foil. Lot is such a good contrast. But no doubt this chapter is one of the high points for Abram. No doubt. And we'll see him struggle again. We'll see him fail again. We'll see him stumble again, just like all of us do. But this is a moment where he's able to hold the tension between the promise and the reality. So what do we learn from this part of Abram's journey? Number one, first lesson, we walk by faith, not by sight. Of course, that's straight from 2 Corinthians 5, 7. I want to reread verse 10 of Genesis 13. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. As you go to Zoar, listen to the emphasis on his eyes. I'm going to go back to the beginning of Genesis. Listen for a similar in emphasis in this verse. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she took from its fruit and ate. Can you trust your eyes? 
Not all that glitters is gold. And we know this. And yet our default position, because we're human beings, is we live by sight, not by faith. Now, that doesn't mean that everything you see, everything that looks good is actually evil. That's not the point of the text. But it's a reminder, back to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, we don't walk by sight, men and women. As followers of Jesus Christ, we walk by faith. I find it interesting that the definition of faith given in Hebrews 11.1 1 reads this way. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen, not seen. I was reflecting this week on something that, that Lloyd has said that it rings true in my own mind. Could it be that sometimes the greatest obstacle to faith is our own sight? Sometimes. Sometimes. The walk of faith, you might say, is a journey of learning to see with new eyes. Eyes of faith. Abram was learning this lesson. Don't despair. It's a process. It's a journey. You don't get there overnight. This is part of what it means for your faith to grow, my faith to grow, is we become over time wiser. We become over time able to see things less from the eyes of our own desires, less from the eyes of what looks shiny and new and desirous to us, and more from the eyes of God, more from the eyes of the Holy Spirit who indwells in us as we learn to yield more and more our own sight and our sight begins to be transformed to match his sight. We walk by faith, not by our own sight. Lesson number two, generosity and faith are interdependent. Generosity and faith are interdependent. You might say they're almost inseparable from one another. They're, they're interwoven in this tight weave that you can't pull one thread apart from the other's. Faith makes generosity possible, and generosity strengthens faith. Why could Abram be so generous with his nephew? I mean, this is radical generosity. In fact, to the culture in that time, just the secular pagan culture, this would have been a foolish decision. Why could Abram do that? Because he had faith in the promise. And by the way, I want to show you something in your text. If you look back at verse 18, you see the altar that Abram built. And then, you know, keep your finger at 18 and look back up to verse 4. He goes back to the altar. He calls upon the name of the Lord. Do you see the bookends of our passage this morning? Is, is altar, right? And uh, we call that an inclusio. Michael talked about it last week. There was an inclusio last week. There's an inclusio this week. This time the inclusio or the bookends of the passage is the altar. In other words, it's worship. So everything in between we know is going to turn out well for Abram because his heart was set to worship his God. Now, when you think of worship, we think about singing almost exclusively, and singing is a powerful way that we do that, but this is not what's meant by here in the text. It means a whole lifestyle of worship. It means we're calling out upon the name of the Lord, and when we live our lives that way, we have new eyes to see, and we become to be more generous. Now, why is this close link between generosity and faith? Right? Why is it almost impossible to be generous if you're not a person of faith? And I would ask you to think about it this way. It's impossible to, to be generous when you're driven by fear. 
If your security is in your wealth, however you define wealth, it's very difficult to be open-handed with it. It's very difficult to give it away. And I want to invite you to think more broadly than just in terms of money and stuff and material things. What do you look for or what do you look to for your wealth? What do you look to for your sense of security, your sense of well-being? Whatever that is, that's your identity. For some of you, it is your money. For some of you, it is your things and your retirement and your bank account and your stuff. For others of you, it's your health, maybe your looks. For some of you, it's your relationships or perhaps one particular relationship. For some of you, it's a career. For some of us, it's our talent, personality. Maybe for many of us, it's our kids or grandkids. For some of you, it may be your own sense of righteousness, your own sense of goodness, your ability to kind of be a good person. There's something or some things in each of us that when we really examine our hearts, we say, I think this is really what I'm putting my faith in. This is really what I'm, I'm looking to for my sense of well-being and my sense of security and my sense of I'm okay and I'm not in danger. Whatever it is for you, that's the thing that you'll be tempted to be closed-fisted with, even with God. Now, I want to talk about the power and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the power and beauty of the gospel is that our security, our well-being is not in anything inside of us that we've manufactured or grabbed onto on our own. Our security and our well-being comes from outside of us. It is imputed on us as we trust in Christ. Therefore, it's nothing we can lose. So as you begin to remind yourself, this is what the gospel teaches about my identity. Right, we tend to think of the gospel as just the thing that we, we believed in when we were 19 years old or 4 years old or 28 years old or 43 years old. Back then, we put our trust in Christ and our eternity was secure. That's true. But the gospel continues to feed you. The gospel continues to inform you and transform you. This deep down truth that you are loved. This deep down truth that you've been, giving an, you've been given an inheritance and a security that nothing can take away. It doesn't come from your wealth. It doesn't come from your kids. It doesn't come from your talent, your personality, your identity. It doesn't come from anything that could go away, anything that could slip through your fingers, anything that you could lose. It was nothing you could have achieved on your own, so you can't mess it up. And I give you hope. Right, we got to remind ourselves of this, men and women, because we put our trust in other things. Now, what needs to happen for each of us for that truth to sort of sink its way from, it, from our head down into our hearts, down into our whole souls? By the way, when that happens, you'll become more generous. You'll become more generous with your money. You'll become more generous with your stuff. You'll become more generous in your relationships. Become more generous with your kids, your grandkids. You'll have less fear. You'll be more open-handed as you entrust these things to God. What causes that to happen, I would say, is going back to this tension right? Don't forget the promise. These promises are true. Yes, I know the reality is also true. Promises aren't fully here, but live in the tension between these two and remember the good news. Remember the gospel. We like to say around here, you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. One more lesson as we begin to wrap this up. 
To follow Jesus is to hold that tension between promise and reality. Most people tend to live like this. My reality is that unless I work for what I have, unless I grab onto and hold of things tightly, they may be taken away from me. My reality is my life is hard. Or for some of you, my reality is my life is great and I don't need God. <laughs> Remember Michael last week? I so appreciated that. He said, I don't need God when my life's going well, when my reality is positive. I don't need the promise. I don't need God. Could it be that God gives us this gap where our reality is not all that we wish it was most times to bring us to faith? Most people tend to live here. Some people live so uh, um, enmeshed with how hard their life is that they can't even see the promise anymore. I mean, this has just dominated their world. It's like this. Here's the lesson for us. Yes, we hold our reality. We don't pretend it doesn't exist. But we take this promise too. And we hold these together. Now think about how Jesus lived. Think about how, what Jesus taught. Right? Jesus told his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Right? Jesus told his disciples, blessed are those who weep, are those who grieve, for they will be comforted. Blessed are you when, the, when, when they persecute you for my name's sake, for great is your reward in heaven. Jesus says, the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come so you may have life and have it abundantly. And you see, we hold the promise and the reality. This is the walk of faith. We hold them in tension. Now, there's one more place I want to take you before we close out in the morning. There will be a day when the promise will become reality. They will be one and the same. And Lord, haste the day when my faith will be made sight. That day is coming. And this is our hope. This is what we long for, but it's not here right now. We still have the promises. Reality is also true. Hold them together as you await the day that the promise will be your reality. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Our Father, would you give us faith to believe your words are true? Would you give us hope? Would you give us this desire to please you with our lives? Would you give us this longing for you to come to make things right, to, to mend back the brokenness? But in the meantime, would you keep us plugging along with hope, even joy? Father, we believe that your desire is that we live lives of joy, live lives of hope, live lives in this tension between the promise and the reality. 
Father, like Abram, we lift up our eyes to you in worship. We call upon the name of the Lord because we know it's only you who will provide. It's only you that will give us endurance. It's only you who will give us strength to keep going step after step, day after day, that we could move closer and closer to the day when that promise will be the reality. Keep us faithful in the gap. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great day.